section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to move on to a new section in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. We've got a lot of material to cover there. That's actually going to be lesson number five in your workbook. Uh, I think we're getting some more workbooks printed right now. Chad, I think, noticed that we were out of them. So if you don't have one, you can look on with someone and just bear with us. We'll try to get some extras to you uh, by Sunday. Uh, Brother Dave, uh, sorry to put you on the spot like this, sir, but should you mind leading us in a prayer this evening? Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the many blessings you provided to us. Thank you for the rain that we've enjoyed. Thank you more for allowing us to be here this evening to fellowship with each other and study your word. We pray, dear Lord, that as we study about um, your son's teaching, uh, his, the Sermon on the Mount, and all of the circumstances surrounding that, that we might be better equipped as we live our lives in service to you here on earth. Thank you for this church, and may we always work to uh, spread your word and do your will according to your gospel. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir. Okay, so before we start verses 13 through 16 of Matthew 5, let me just say a few other things very quickly about the last part of the Beatitudes, which is verses 10 down to verse 12. You remember when we concluded our class on Sunday, we, we made the point, or we tried to really consider how Jesus announces blessings on those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He says that while the world is going to come down hard on us because we're going to apply these teachings from Jesus, he says we need to rejoice. So the world's going to come down on you. But rejoice and be glad. And rejoice and be glad because great is what? Your reward in heaven. You've got to focus on the big picture. That there's a reward at the end of this. Now it's interesting how when we get to the book of Acts, we're going to see a lot of this get played out. For example, in Acts chapter 4, after the apostles are persecuted by the Sanhedrin council, the scripture says that they go and they meet with the church. They meet with the Christians. And they don't complain. They don't say, oh God, please take this away from us. Instead, they pray. They pray about it. And they rejoice that they are able to suffer for Jesus' sake. They have a very different attitude than we possess so, so often in 21st century America as we endure the persecution we face. These Christians were going through much more severe persecution, and yet they did exactly what Jesus said. They rejoiced and they were glad. 
And Paul, I think about Paul when I think about the reward in heaven is great. Remember in Paul's last epistle, 2 Timothy 4, he's about to be killed by the Roman Empire. About to get his head cut off. And in the last chapter, he, he talks to Timothy and he talks about how he has a crown of righteousness waiting for him. And he's ready to go be with Jesus. Even in the book of Philippians, while he was in prison the first time, he's talking about the goal. He's talking about the prize. He is saying that, you know, I'd rather be with the Lord, but, you know, I also know I have work to do with you here. The point is, Paul, what got him through all that he went through was what Jesus said. Thinking about the reward. Thinking about how great heaven is going to be. And so, what Jesus is trying to get us to understand here is that we're going to be persecuted. But when we get persecuted, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. He even says, going back to the end of verse 12, that we're being persecuted in the same way as who? Prophets. The prophets. The servants of God. And that's what we find throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. The prophets were persecuted. But it wasn't just the prophets, the apostles, as we're going to see in Acts this year. The early church. And then remember Peter said that not only did Jesus suffer worse than anybody, especially when you consider that he's innocent and sinless, but he left an example for us of how to get through suffering. That's the point of 1 Peter 2. So what was his example? We made some points of that. Even when Jesus suffered, he maintained his integrity. No deceit. No guile found the mouth of Jesus. He always maintained his integrity and he put his trust in God. He put his trust in the Lord. He trusted God's will. He was not ashamed to be the Messiah that God wanted him to be, even though the Jews rejected him as that Messiah. And so as the persecution we face intensifies, and it will intensify. We're seeing that, aren't we? It's going to intensify. But as it intensifies, I want you to think about this. Don't run from the persecution. Don't run from it. Instead, embrace it. I know that sounds weird, but that's what Jesus says. Embrace it. Embrace it that you are counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Don't look at it as a cursing. We're not being cursed right now because we're suffering, because we're going through some persecution, because people mock us and, and make fun of us, and they're not letting us be as open about our faith. Uh, without you know getting some consequences like in times past. Don't look at it as a cursing. Instead, the Bible says we need to look at persecution and suffering as an opportunity to be tested. You know, it's easy to serve Jesus when things are going okay. It's easy to do that. It's easy to serve Jesus right now. We're in a room together. We all believe in Jesus. We all serve Jesus. We all worship Jesus. This is easy. You know what's hard? Going out on your job. When you're the only Christian in your family, when you're only, when you're the only Christian in your school, in your community, when you're tested for Jesus' sake and you continue to move forward, now you're showing you're a real disciple. You're a real disciple. So look at it as an opportunity to have a good test for your faith, and don't act like God has forsaken us. God is not forsaken us. I know things are getting worse. I know things are getting bad, but look at this as evidence of God's faithfulness. Jesus said you're going to be persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised by this. If we were not being persecuted, then Jesus would be made out to be a liar. But we're going through this because he says it's going to happen. You can't serve me and expect not to be persecuted. 
So one more thing I want to say about that. Brother Mike was talking to me, Brother Mike Abney, on Sunday. I thought he made a good point to me. If you have some time this week, James 3, James chapter 3 may be a good chapter to read because in James 3, if I'm right about, if I'm right about that, Mike, uh, list some of these Beatitudes. In fact, it may list all of them. And that shows me, Mike, like we were talking about, how the Beatitude was a big part of Christian doctrine in the first century. It was something that they were preaching. You find it being quoted often in the writings of the early church fathers, we call them, quote-unquote, Polycarp and Clement. They're not, they were not inspired, but even in the inspired writings, we find them being quoted again. James is a good example of that. This is the same James who didn't believe in Jesus when he originally preached this sermon. But after he saw the risen Savior, well now later when he writes the book of James, what is he doing? He's quoting from Jesus' teaching. So just, just look at that later. Okay, let's go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5.13. We're in a new section now. Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, as we start breaking this section down, let me just say that in these verses right here we just read, we get an explanation of the previous verses. We get a good explanation. We get an explanation as to why Jesus told us to do what he did in the Beatitudes. The reason why Jesus gave us those Beatitudes, the reason why Jesus told us to, to do these things, to have these things in our heart, is because according to these verses we just read, he wants us to do something. He wants us to be something. You see, only when we develop the qualities of verses 3 down to verse 12 will we be able to do what he's talking about in verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, get your heart right. Get these godly qualities because I have something I want you to be. I got something I want you to do. I want you to be and do two things. I want you to be salt. Number one, I want you to be salt. You see that in verse 13? Verse 13, after Jesus gives those beatitudes, he says, you are the salt of the earth. We're salt. How often do you get up every day thinking about how today I have to be salt? I got to be salt today. But that's what Jesus says. We have to be salt. Now, what is salt good for? Someone tell me. What is salt good for? What does salt do? What's some of the first thing that pops in your mind? Why y'all got to give like the main answer right away? <laughs> no, no, that's right. We'll get back to that in just a second. Well, that's good. But what else does salt do? Adds taste to the tasteless. Okay, so you, so you like salt in your food? I do. I love salt. I can't eat much anything without salt. I Believe it or not, I love to eat broccoli. But I can't eat broccoli without some salt. I like and cheese, too. <laughs> uh, I like burgers. I like steak. But it's all i got to have salt. And my wife gets on the beach sometimes for putting too much salt. But I like the salt. Salt brings taste to things. And 
we not only that, but in the Old Testament sacrifice system, in the sacrificial system, the priests use salt a lot. And that makes sense if you think about what do they have around them all the time? A bunch of dead animals. They're sacrificing animals. And the priests, part of their pay was getting to sometimes or often eat the sacrifices. Now how are you going to preserve that stuff? With salt. So in the Old Testament, in the time of Jesus, just like in our time, salt had a variety of different uses. It was used in the sacrificial system. It was used for flavor in, time, in the time of Jesus. But the primary, the primary use of it was it was, a, it was a preservative. Didn't they also have, was it a form of currency back in the day too? I haven't heard of that, Ryan. I, th I thought it may be. It, you may be right about that. Um, I haven't heard of that, but that may have been the case. One thing I did notice in my research, though, was in the time of Jesus, the main purpose of it was a preservative. If you had meat, this is a time you don't have, you know, freezers, you know, fridges like we have. If you want to preserve your meat, you pack it with salt. You pack it with salt. You pack it with salt. And so Jesus, I believe in this text, the main use of this is the idea that they would have understood it. It was to be a preservative. We are to be a preservative. Jesus wants us to be a preservative, and the implication of that is be a preservative in a rotting world. In a rotting world. Isn't that the implication? If we got to be a preservative, then what does that mean about the world? It's rotting. It's rotting. It's decaying. And are you noticing that? Is the world rotting? Is the world decaying? Oh, yes. And it's always been that way, and it's becoming more so that way, which means every day that goes by, we have an even bigger responsibility of being salt because this world is rotting away. We see it with homosexuality. We see it with the murder of the unborn. We see it with this gender identity stuff and the mocking of God and the rise of atheism and agnosticism. We see it all around us. So salt is to be a preservative. It is a preservative. That's what we have to be. Secondly, though, before we say something else about that, is salt also can make you thirsty. Does salt make you thirsty? You ever have some salty peanuts? When you eat a pack of salty peanuts, what do you want pretty quick? You want something to drink. You want some soda? You want something. Well, do you think as Christians we have a responsibility to make people thirsty? How do we make people thirsty? By the way we live. By teaching. Jesus is saying that not only must we be a preservative, but I think in a sense he's also saying that we should be drawing people to God. We should be drawing people to God. And I think that makes perfect sense when you look at the next part. We're just going to put these two things together and then I'll get some comments from you. And the next part, Jesus continues this in verse 14 by talking about light. Okay, so we got to be salt, we are preservative, but we're also light. Now, that's when you read that, you, you may think initially that's not really a big deal. Because, look at this. But that's only been for the last hundred years or exactly. so. Exactly. So, in our time, think about it. How often do you think much about light and the blessing of light? I don't. I take it for granted. I get up in the middle of the night. I turn the lights on. I, if I want a light, if I'm in a real dark place, like when I go to the auditorium sometimes, 
and I don't want to play with how to turn it on and everything, you know what I can do? Pull out that phone. What's on it? Flashlight's on it. You go to the ATM. What do they got there usually when you go to the ATM if you go at night? You got lights to, to go ahead and, and put your PIN number in and, and get some money out. You go to a ball game. Rick goes and, and Peggy will see their, their, their grandson play soccer. And a night game. Are they? Does Rick have to go, oh, man, I just can't see. It's so dark on the field. What, what's a, what, what do they have, Rick, at the games, at, at night games? Big lights. Big lights. <laughs> stadium, big, the big stadium lights. So we got, we got light all around us. You go to a ball game. You go to a, a soccer game. You go to a football game. There's big stadium lights. You go to a restaurant. You go to Red Lobster. You go to Chili's. You go to Red Robin. There's lights everywhere. You go to places like New York City. Lights everywhere. On your phone you have a light. Go to the ATM. You got a light. Go home tonight. Every room in your house has a light. Is that the way it was in the time of Jesus? Was light that easily accessible? It absolutely was not. In fact, there are places in the world even today where light is not that easily accessible. I've been to places like that. There are some places in the world today, and especially it was this way in the time of Jesus, that when the sun goes down, guess what everybody has to do? They go on the bed. Because they can't see. That's it. When the light, when the sun, the sun is all they got. And, and, and so, when you understand it from that perspective, what Jesus is saying here, and especially in his time, is more powerful. Because they don't have the access to light that we do. So when they hear Jesus talk about light, that's a big deal. It's like, wow, yes. He even talks about the city set on a hill. I've seen that firsthand in Israel, how that looks. I mean, Nazareth in Israel is a city set on a hill. So imagine this, you're traveling in the time of Jesus. You're, you're traveling on the road that leads into Jericho. And it's not like, you know, when you drive home tonight, you got all these street lights and everything, and you can see everywhere you're going, and you got, you know, headlights on your car. It wasn't like that. When you're traveling to Jericho, one of the things that may help you on that dark road is a city set on a hill. You're trying to get to Nazareth, let's say. And you, you can see Nazareth on that city on the hill. It stands out to you. Because everything else around you is dark. And so cities like Nazareth and other cities that were on a hill really stood out to the people in the first century because they were full of light. They were full of light. They were easily noticed. They stood out. The same is also true like if you were just in a room like this. You know, we were having this Bible study 2,000 years ago. We wouldn't have this blessing. You know, we would have to light up, get us a lamp. You know, get us a lamp, and that's a process getting that together. But that one lamp, when, when if, I, if we had a lamp here, everybody's going to be drawn to that. That's our only source of light in the room. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. You see, these illustrations he uses here are not obviously 21st century illustrations. These are people where light was a big deal. So what is Jesus really saying here? Well, here's the point. What Jesus is saying, he talks about light and being like a, a, a lamp or being like a city on a hill, is his people need to stand out. They need to stick out. They need to be noticeable. Like a person traveling on the dark road to Jericho and they can see that city on a hill, 
That city on the hill needs to be us. While people walk in the darkness in this world, they need to look at you and you and all of you and say, oh, there's that light. There's the light. You're that city on the hill. That's what Jesus, that's where he's getting at. That's where he's getting at there. And so, let's talk a little bit about how we can do that. There's a question in your workbook about how we can do that. Jesus says disciples need to be lights. They need to be noticeable. They need to be vessels that God uses to bring people out of darkness. They need to give light to all who are in the house. That is, they need to be the kind of people who can help the people around them. The people around them on your job, in your neighborhood, at your school. If you're in a family like mine, where there's not many Christians, wherever you are, people notice you. You light up the room because of who you are. You got that kind of influence. You have that kind of positive impact. In fact, let me just pull, pull up one verse before I get some of your comments. Look again at verse 16. Verse 16. You got to shine in such a way that men, before men, that they see your good works. They need to see you. See your good works. And glorify your Father who's in heaven. By the way you live every day, people need to be impacted they need to be influenced by you. They need to be able to say, there's God in that person. And I, wanna, I want what they have. I want what they have. So this is all about influence. This is all about influence. What kind of influence do you have in your life? What kind of person are you? Do people recognize you as a Christian? Or are you just blending in and fitting in with everybody else? That's really what this is all about. So let's talk practical about this. What are some things, what are some other things we need to bring up about this? Anything you want to say right now about the text or maybe some practical things you think we can do to shine? Go right ahead, Rick. Start I'm, us off, I'm sir. I'm glad you finally brought that word influence because that's what we are to be, is an influence for good. Jesus using these two metaphors of salt and light were commodities that were within every household, regardless of how poor you were. But truthfully, I think this was a remarkable statement made to a pure Jewish audience, when he starts talking about earth and the world, that is different. Yes. Very different from what they have come to know and have been taught. No, that's a, that is an excellent point there. Um, and you know, if you were to expand this to the Roman Empire, which was as, as corrupt as ever during this time, or even the corrupt Religious leaders. Let's not forget about them. Were they lights? <laughs> were they salt? They, they, were, they were the total opposite of that. Even though most Jews thought what? That they were that. Yes. They thought they were light. They thought they were salt. So that shows me again that being a light and salt is not about just what I'm doing on the outside. It's about who I am. Who I am on the inside will naturally manifest itself outwardly. But the Pharisees were fooling the people, pretending to be lights and salt, but God knew they were not. Because inwardly they were decaying. They were rotting. It's an excellent point, Rick. Yes, sir, Andy. There you go. Go ahead. I was wondering where you were. I didn't know you were right. Go ahead. Uh, when I read the first question when I was doing this uh, yes. workbook, and uh, it said, how can, how can we be salt in a rotting world? Mm -hmm. And that made me think of, well, salt actually doesn't really add flavor, but it actually brings out the existing flavor. So Don't it, say that about broccoli. I don't believe no. that. <laughs> no, go ahead. So 
thing about rotting, something that's rotting, and you add salt to it, if you taste it, it just amplifies the rotting taste. So, in a sense, not only do we send out, but we also make whatever's rotting or the evil actually come out to, to a much clearer level. So, um, the same thing with light. I don't know if it's happened to you, but I turn on my phone when it's dark and it's on the bright setting. It just blinds me, or in a flash in a dark setting. Um, not, it, it makes you realize just how dark it was. You know what I'm saying? So, not only do we stand out, but we also make everyone else realize where they were in, what situation they were in. I think that's a great point. It reminds me of what Paul said about in Ephesians 5.11. Ephesians 5.11 did not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even exposed them. So by shining, not only do we hopefully draw people to righteousness like a fly is drawn to the light or insects are drawn to the light, but we expose the evil. So if we were not in this world, there would be no exposing of the evil. Everybody would just be all good. Be, that's why they can't stand us usually, because we're exposing it. So that, that, that goes exactly with what you're saying, Ephesians 5.11. Great point. Brother Dave, yes sir. We should view this as a compliment. If you look in John 8, verse 12, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Mm -hmm. And here he says, you are the light of the world. Christians should view ourselves that way. This shouldn't be overwhelming. I mean, basically Jesus is put in a sense. I, yeah. I, don't I, know, mean, I know exactly I what you're saying. I don't mean no. Jesus here, but he's put us on a par with him in the responsibility that we have showing spiritual goodness to the world. Uh, and we shouldn't be overwhelmed by that, really, because Jesus kind of led the way. He set the standard for that. The first 11 verses here talks about those attributes to have to show that light. So we have a roadmap. We know how it's done. You know, it's not like we're shooting in the dark. So that is, no, no, no. That is everything you said is right on the money. Jesus blazed the trail. He was a trailblazer on this. The great thing about our Lord is He doesn't ask us or require us to do things that He hadn't done first. Right. Everything He's He's required of us, He did it first. And so. Even these Beatitudes. Jesus is all that. He lived that. That's his life. Mm -hmm. And even this idea of being salt and light. That's what the Bible says about him over and over again. In fact, in the Gospel of John, you, you quoted John 8. But, and I'm going to read later, the first five verses in John. So the, book, the Gospel starts by saying he's the, he was the light. So what Jesus is basically saying is, I'm your master, you're a disciple, and what's a disciple? Someone who's striving to be like the master. This should this should this should make just common sense here. We should want to be like our master. If he's the light, then we should want to be the light. So excellent point, brother Ryan, and then Mike back there. So I think it's interesting, guys, about the trampled underfoot. Mm -hmm. Old salt. That's what they did with it. They throw it on the roads, so weeds wouldn't grow. So they would maintain the roads with it. That's what it was good for. And that's to be walked on. That's my next point. My last point tonight so, is what so, happens. So when you're salt not there. can lose its flavor, just like we can lose our saltiness, and our candle can go out. So we need to be, always be on guard for that, right? Because we're either going to be walked on or we're going to be burnt out. And that, in that context, is talking about from God. If you don't do what you're supposed to do as a disciple, or snuffed out, I should have said, God is going to bring judgment yeah. on you. That's what Jesus is saying, though. Yeah. There's consequences for not doing this right. as a disciple. Brother Mike, yes sir. Well, using verse 20 as, as our thesis text, Yes. we have to exceed that of the righteous, the Pharisees, the scribes, 
Paul in, in Ephesians 4 said that we need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which we've been called. But then he goes on to say in verse 3, be diligent to preserve, there's our word, mm -hmm. in the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Mm -hmm. Again, if we're divisive between ourselves, and he explains that at the beginning of Corinthians, being divisive, and um, and, I, and I, as I was thinking about this, I think of social media. Oh yeah, we're all good in the building, but wait till I get home from my computer. And let's You're see not the light no more. Let, let, let me take somebody down. Or this is somebody. one of the big problems here, this, is social media for yeah, us. It, it, that's, our, that's our hole right now, social media, and, and being able to sit back and, and not, what do we used to do, debate? Yep. We used to come face to face, like you said on Sunday, we talked talk to each other, but now we can just sit home and then... And, Keyboard courage is what it's called. What do they, what is, I mean, I'm not on social media anymore, but what do they do? They dislike or... Not and I see it every day with disciples. Or, or they just cancel you. They just wipe you off. Yep. And now what you say remind me of also John 17, verse 20. John 17, 20. Where Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's praying. But for those yeah. who believe in me through their words, they may all be one. one. That's unity. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. We want to be in fellowship with God because we're in fellowship with each other so that the world may believe that you sent me. It goes perfectly together. So, how do we preserve? How do we shine? Let me give you a few things to think about. In addition to doing everything we've talked about so far in this sermon, you want to shine, put the Beatitudes in your heart and your life, That'll do it. That's, that's the foundation. But in addition to that, and this probably ties with that, avoiding worldly entertainment. I don't shine and I'm not salt when I'm going to the club. When I'm going to the bar. You know, when I'm going places that a Christian, I know a Christian is not supposed to be. A party where there's all kind of drinking and and ungodly dancing. Do I shine when I do that? Do I preserve a rotting and decaying world? No. I don't shine when I entertain myself in the same way that the world does. Avoid, and this goes with Mike saying, says secondly, worldly communication. So that can include the social media things, which I think is the biggest hint hindrance to us right now as far as this goes. I mean, if you want to see examples tonight of Christians who are not shining in all aspects of life, just get on social media. It's, it's all over the place. It's just embarrassing. And especially some of the things we fight about, which is politics and all these other things. It's shameful. And, and, the, and the devil just sits back and he, and he laughs, but so many Christians have no self-control. they got to get their opinion out there because they're right about everything and they want you to know that. And what they do is they fall right into the devil's trap. But not just that. What about on your job? And you hear people laughing at dirty jokes. Saying dirty jokes. Talking about people from other races in a degrading way. What do you do then? Do you, if you laugh at that, if you join that, if you even just sit there and show any kind of approval, are you shining? No, you just became contaminated salt or put your light under the bushel. That's exactly what you've done. You become contaminated salt. You put your light under the bushel. 
if you wanna if you wanna know if you're being a light on your job and people are doing that kind of stuff, talking in that way, see how they respond or how, ask yourself how do they respond when I come in the room. When they when I come in the room, they may not agree with my faith. They may not agree with my faith. They may think I'm a weird religious freak. But do they at least think to themselves or say amongst themselves, "Hey, let's uh, let's hold this joke off till later because Dave is here. You know how Dave is. He don't, you know, he doesn't like that. If they're saying that stuff about Dave, you know what that means? He's been doing influence. He's got the he's got influence. He's been shining. He's made them uncomfortable. He's distinctly different. <laughs> that's the point. So that's the kind of stuff you want the world to say about you. They may not agree with you and like your faith and all that, but they at least need to know he doesn't talk like us. We need to, we'll respect him. We don't agree, but we'll respect it. That's when you know you got influence. But when they just keep, when they, they just go along with it, keep talking, or you even try to invite them to church later, and they say something to you like, I didn't even know you were a Christian. Now you know you, you, you're not this at all. You, you're not this at all. And so that's two things. Avoid ungodly entertainment, worldly communication. Let me give you one more thing. Real quick, my time's about to run out. One more thing to think about. And this is going to get with our lesson Sunday. And this is a big fear I have. And this is something we need to pray about. We need to talk about more as God's people when we get together outside of services. We need to stop trying to cut ourselves off from the world. That's our problem. We want to cut ourselves off from the world. We want to get our own little village, our own, our own little community of people in our church and keep to ourselves. And oh, those people out there, they're just so bad. We're just going to stay away from them. How can you shine when you're doing that? You can't shine cutting yourself off from the world. You, you can't be salt cutting yourself off from the world. Am I saying we, gotta, we, we need to fit in with the world and take on their ungodly principles and morals? No. But for us to shine in the dark world, we got to be out in the world. You, you can't cut yourself off from the world and expect to bring souls to God. If we're thinking we're going to save the world about, well, everybody come to those church building doors, no way. No way, no how. We can't do what Jesus says here, cutting ourselves off completely from the world. And so we got to figure out and pray about how to be in the world but not of the world. That's going to tie with our sermon on Sunday. Because if anybody knew how to be in the world but not of the world, guess who it was? It was Jesus Christ. That's Luke chapter 5. You might want to read that before Sunday is. Okay, last thing real quick and then we need to close. Danger. Let's talk about the danger of not doing this. Now there was a couple of questions in there. There are a couple of questions in your workbook about what, is the, what are the dangers for not being sought in light? Or what are some of the things that can hinder us? Let me say that better. What are some of the things that can hinder us from being salt and light? I hope you put in there fear. So often we are afraid. We are afraid to be salt and light. We want to blend in. We want to fit in. We want to come here and take the Lord's Supper and sing and pray and check that stuff off on the box, but then go out in the world and try to fit in with Him. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it with Jesus. Jesus says... That if we are not salt, then that means we are now tasteless. Salt that's not useful is tasteless. It's tasteless, and going back to what you said, it is good for nothing, and it's going to be thrown out and trampled. So here Jesus is saying 
that when we are not salt, if we're not taking this on and trying to influence people in a godly way, we're useless to God. God can't use us. We're useless because we don't have influence. God cannot use His people when they don't have influence with the world. That's what He's saying. Don't have influence. And the same is also true with the part about light. If you don't shine your light in your daily life, then you're just like a lamp that's been put under a bushel. You covered up. You are, I am, we're useless. So Jesus says if we don't do this, if we don't be the salt and the light, God can't use us. He can't use us to His glory. And since He can't use us, now He's going to bring judgment on us. There are, there are consequences for this. Do you, do you understand that? you see that? And so here's the thing I want you to take home tonight. It's all about influence. It's all about influence. Remember I told you, we can do this stuff. This is not rocket science. Tomorrow, wherever you're going, if you're going to work, if you're going to be going to the gym with some friends, whatever you're doing tomorrow, just get, keep your influence. Keep your influence. Let them know. I'm not saying go out and just shout on the rooftop, I'm a Christian. Let them be able to figure that out by looking at how you live. Okay? Keep your influence, because if you don't have your influence, you got nothing. You got nothing. You're useless salt, tasteless salt, a light under a bushel. So let's close with one more scripture reading. Dave, I like that you brought up John 8. That was excellent. Because I was trying to figure out some other verses from John uh, yesterday, and I was looking them up, and I forgot about John 8. That's a good one. But what about John 1? 1 through 5, to go with what Dave is saying. And how Jesus paved the way. He's the trailblazer with this. John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Him was life, and the life... The spiritual life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus was the light 2,000 years ago in the highest possible way. And that dark world in which he lived in rejected him, just like they're rejecting us. But Jesus always maintained his integrity, and he shows us that we can do it. We can be lights like him. So, final comments, real quick. Any other things? Yes, Rick, please. I just wanted to share the prophet Isaiah gave a prophecy yes. in, in Isaiah 42. And here's what it reads. Isaiah 42? I, okay. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you, and I think that pertains to Christ, in righteousness, and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Beautiful. That's pretty profound. Absolutely, especially when you think about light to the nations or Gentiles. That's us. We couldn't find our way to God without the light of Jesus. Absolutely. Anyone else? Any other comments? Did you have some? Yes, Kimberly. When it came to mind when we were talking about you know, the consequences that come from not speaking up on certain things. I thought of Ezekiel 33, mm. where he talks about the watchmen and, and their, their duty to warn and their duty to tell people. Oh, yes. Ezekiel 33. Great chapter. Read that one tonight, too. You know, and I'm glad y'all brought up these Old Testament passages, because I hope you can see that Jesus is not requiring disciples to do anything new. Israel had this responsibility. 
They had it too. You brought it up. It's in the Old Testament. But unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, most of them were not doing it. And they had become useless, which will explain later why God will bring judgment on them in 70 AD. Good stuff, everybody. Good stuff. Oh, yes, Peg. Yes, ma'am. Please. And all of this, I think, is one of the hardest things is our consistency. A lot of times it's like we have a dimmer switch on us and we're, we're bright and we're dim. And I think the world sees us when, when we're at our dimmest a lot of times and then they point fingers at us. So, and that's that our influence. And you know what they call people like that usually? They call those people hypocrites. So that we have we can't afford to, to dim it. We can't afford to dim it even for a day or an hour. Because the one time we do that is the one time we could hinder God's cause. So that's an excellent point. Let's stop right there, everybody.